Jesus Christ is our living hope. And I trust that is true of you. But let's go before the Lord in prayer. Lord, as we sang, death has lost its grip on the one who trusts you. It's repented of their sins. Lord, the very sins that put you on the cross. Lord, we don't want to live that way. We want to live your way. So, Holy Spirit, I pray that as we go into your word today, that you will help us to understand, that you will help us to practically apply your word to our lives. Lord, we're also mindful of of those even in our midst who have chronic illness and some even who have uh, relatives and friends who have been suffering from the COVID virus or the effects thereof. We're asking God that you would intervene in their lives. We're asking, Lord, that you would help them to look to you because, Lord Jesus, you are our living hope. And, Lord, regardless of, of where we are physically, regardless of where we are, uh, whether we have the COVID virus or the seasonal flu, or it doesn't matter. Lord, what matters is that we look to you for salvation. Lord, because we all know that the harsh reality is that all of us are going to die of something at some time. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to all be ready when that day comes. So, Lord, we're asking that you would lead us and guide us, help us by your spirit to understand this powerful passage of Scripture today. In Jesus' name we pray. Well, we have learned or regularly spoken in recent days a whole new vocabulary. Coronavirus, COVID-19, pandemic, death rates, social distancing, and 95 essential activities. But there's one phrase that seems to have most everybody either hating life or feeling safe. And that phrase is shelter in place. Now, as you know, the basics of shelter in place are fairly clear. Stay at home except for essential activities. Now, as we are all aware, the purpose for such an order is to enforce social distancing or to keep people away from each other to limit the spread of the virus, as we're doing here. Well, today in 1 Corinthians 7, 17 to 24, you might be surprised to find a parallel to the shelter-in-place mandate given to us by our human government. I call it serve him in place, the serve him in place council. Now, you might be thinking I'm trying to be clever or trying to make this passage say something it's not, trying to force-fit this. A contraire, though. See, Paul lays the foundation for serving in place in verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. And in verse 24, we find this. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Hence the point. Serve him in place, as in the condition in which the Corinthian Christians and us by extension were called. Today, I want to speak a word of liberation to some of you and a challenge to the rest of us. If you get nothing out of this message today, get this. As followers of Christ, we have the freedom to serve the Lord right where we are, even during this COVID thing. And on the other hand, especially during this COVID thing, life can be tough for many of you. 
tough circumstances, they don't excuse us from living a life that's faithful to the Lord Jesus. Now, having said that, let me take you to the very heart of the issue in these verses. You know, again, 1 Corinthians 7, 17 to 24. Let's go to verse 19. And here's where Paul says, For neither circumcision counts for anything or uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. In other words, regardless of what situation we find ourselves in as Christians, what is of greatest importance to the Lord is that we keep his commandments. And we're going to unpack that as we go along. But for now, let's go back to verse 17, the beginning of our passage, as we talk about God's call and the Lord's assignment that he has given to the Corinthian Christians, and by extension, every follower of Christ. So what exactly is God's call that Paul is talking about right here? See, many who see the word call or calling believe that God is communicating his specialized, tailor-made, individual plan for the Christian. Now, many understand the call of God this way by reading verses like Jeremiah 29, 11, when he says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And we apply this individually to our lives. And in Romans 12, 2, we read this. As we renew our minds, we can discover God's will for us, that which is good and acceptable and perfect, his perfect will for us. And so some might think that God's call in 1 Corinthians 7, 17 is his tailor-made plan given by God just for us. But for those of you who hold to the idea that God has a perfect tailor-made plan for you, let me burst your bubble a little bit, or free you from the cage in which you've placed yourself. See, in talking with a number of people over the years, I've heard a lot of regret, and it goes something like this. You know, God called me to a certain thing, a pastor or a missionary, fill in the blank. And I resisted God's call, and now it's too late. It's almost as if they believe that God has permanently set them on the shelf and that God will never use them, all because they resisted his tailor-made plan for them, his call. But we cannot find this idea in Scripture. Certainly, God does have a will for us, and he describes it this way. But it is not a tailor-made individual plan. First, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3 tells us about this plan, this call, as it were. 2 Peter 1.3 tells us that God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. And the passage goes on to say that the all things are found in his great and precious promises. And the great news is that we don't have to wonder where we can find his promises because they're written in a book, the scripture. In other words, In the pages of God's word, we find everything we need to accomplish God's will. Everything. See, what God is after, regardless of what job we have or don't as a result of after this COVID-19 thing is over, or whether we're married or single, is to live our lives pleasing to God. And that's the bottom line. Well, a number of years ago, I came across a book written by a guy named Gary Friesen. And the title of the book is called Decision-Making and the Will of God. Now, some of you may have read that. We've studied it here at Grace United. 
And I highly recommend this book. I can't recommend this book high enough. And I agree with almost everything Friesen writes in it. It has profoundly affected my life. See, in a nutshell, though, Friesen calls what we see in the Scripture as the moral will of God. And he basically says that the will of God is not a certain job or even a ministry or a place where we live, but it's an attitude. And that attitude is summed up this way. Because I am grateful for Jesus saving me, I say, thank you, Lord. And I back that up by showing how grateful I am by faithfully doing what the Lord tells me. That's it in a nutshell. That's God's will. But now this can be scary, though, for people who've always heard that God's call is an individualized plan for their lives. And they can miss it if they're not being very careful. If Friesen is right, and I'm convinced that he is, then not only are we as Christians free to make choices that have life-altering consequences, we are expected to do so. Make the choice. For example, does it surprise you that the only rule regarding who a single person should marry is that he or she is a follower of Jesus? Or that a man who wants to be a pastor, that he strongly desires to do so, and that he's morally and spiritually qualified? Those are the only rules. But now, in both of these life-altering examples, there's not one word about God's call there. It's not about an individualized, tailor-made plan for his or her life. That does not mean, though, that God is not concerned about our our decisions. He's very concerned. Because Scripture is chock-full of principles of truth and wisdom. And indeed, it's the wise Christian who takes advantage of God's wisdom in making his or her decisions. So what does this have to do with 1 Corinthians 17 and God's call? Well, if God's call is not an individual, tailor-made plan, then what is it? What is God's call? What is Paul referring to here? Simply put, God's call is Paul's way of saying this when you became a Christian or when you first began to follow Jesus. That's what God's call is. See, Jesus is clear about how salvation comes about. He promised that he would send the Holy Spirit to the world and that the Holy Spirit would convince the world, convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And when the Holy Spirit convicts, God calls. He calls the sinner to salvation. And when the sinner responds to God's call, guess what? That person now becomes what? The called. So here's what he means in 1 Corinthians 7, 17. When you became a Christian, that's what Paul is talking about here. So we have here Paul saying to the Christian that he or she has been called of God for salvation. But there's more in this verse. Notice that a Christian in 17 is to live his or her life that the Lord, as in the Lord Jesus Christ, has assigned to him or to her. And to put this in the context of the passage, in whatever station in life, whether married or single, And as we will see in a moment, whether Jewish or Gentile or even slave, Paul's strong counsel is faithfully live your life as a follower of Jesus right there. Serve the Lord in place. In other words, faithfully serve the Lord Jesus in place, in the place where he found you in salvation, where he called you. But with that long introduction, let's read the rest of the passage we're going to talk about today. Verses 18 to 24. 
Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Another word for being Jewish. Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised or Gentile? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything or uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is now a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with price. And again, the precious blood of Jesus, that's the price. Do not become bondservants of men. So brothers and sisters, in whatever condition each was called, let him there remain with God. And by the way, I'm going to merely be referring to a lot of passages on Scripture. So it's on the screen, and then later on as I put this out on Facebook and our Proclaim thing, uh, you'll be able to get it downloaded. So, um, so if you're taking notes, just jot them down here so that you can study them later. Again, I'm just going to be referring to them. What we see in this passage, though, without forgetting the first part of the chapter, is that there are six life conditions that Paul is talking about. The state of marriage, being single, living in a spiritually mixed marriage, Jewish, Gentile, and slave. Notice what he says about all of these conditions, regardless of the person living in them. He says, stay there. Regardless of the condition, of when a person became a Christian, regardless of that condition, whether he got married or single or whatever, faithfully served the Lord in that particular life condition. But it sounds as though as Paul is making a hard and fast rule, like it's a, a divine commandment. But there is something called life, in a sense, that kind of gets in the way here. And it's not a hard and fast rule. It is counsel that Paul is giving here. See, because conditions in life do change. Do they not? Marriages only last for a certain length of time. Isn't that right? Until one or both spouses die. Then that marriage dies. Single people get married, but only to another Christian. Spiritually mixed marriages end when the non-Christian leaves the door and, and goes out on his own. Jewish believers sometimes leave their Jewish heritage. Gentile believers sometimes seek to become Jewish. And by the way, that was a big discussion, big point of discussion about right the time that Paul wrote this letter. Slaves often bought their way out of slavery in those days. And we're going to talk about slavery uh, in a little bit. So why would Paul say remain in the condition in life in which one became a Christian? I got several reasons. First, remember the big condition or big concern that Paul had about the Corinthians. What was his biggest concern? In a word, it was disunity. Remember how they displayed disunity. They set their favorite spiritual leader on a big pedestal. And they were so very competitive. Social status and rank was very important traits in their culture. They were always seeking to climb the social ladder to at least appear to be more important than other people. So when Paul tells them to serve the Lord in the condition in which they got saved, he basically told them to stop climbing the social ladder. 
It was Christ, not the social condition that gave them status and real meaning to their lives as Christians. But time marches on, doesn't it? And we haven't learned much over the years. As we continue in the Corinthian correspondence, we will discover that Paul didn't exactly fit the bill of what he described as the super apostles. See, he didn't have the look. And literally, we're going to see that later on. Now, they did have the look. The super apostles did. And some of the Corinthians, based on that, thought little of Paul. But I wonder, though, how Paul would be received in our churches today if he were to somehow come back. How would he be received? Which resume would be more acceptable to the churches today? Would his resume as Paul, the man who was beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, mocked, disrespected, and thrown into jail numerous times, would that be a good resume in today's churches? Or would we be more enamored if we introduced Paul as a missionary and church planter who knew several languages, was fluent in those? He lived on the Mediterranean, and he wrote some letters that many consider very valuable and important. I wonder which resume would be best to introduce him to our churches today in 2020. My point here is that Paul reminds them of their unity in Christ. This is what gives them life. This is what gives them status. And so, therefore, each follower of Christ needs to faithfully serve him in place, in the condition of life in which they found themselves when they got saved. Besides reminding them and us of our unity in Christ, there's a second reason why Paul told them to serve Christ in place. Since no person in the kingdom of God has any more or less importance than another, the same applies to their condition in life. In verse 19, for example, Paul says, whether a guy is circumcised or not circumcised, it means absolutely nothing to God. Zero, zip, nada. But what Paul describes and what God considers here a huge deal is for all of his people to keep the commandments. And as always, God's people don't become God's people because they keep commandments. Isn't that true? See, God's people become that way because of his grace extended to them and of their trust and his promise and repentance from sin. All the way back in the book of Exodus, the Lord makes this clear. This pattern is throughout all Scripture. And here's what he did. For example, when he gave his people the Ten Commandments. If you're a careful reader of Scripture, you know that in Exodus 20, God does not inspire Moses to simply just kind of immediately lay out the Ten Commandments. Actually, he starts out the passage this way. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then he says, you shall have no other gods before me. See, God reminds the people first of their relationship to him and then of his relationship to them. I am the Lord your God. You are my people. Therefore, live this way. Same way here. Christians in in Corinth in the first century and we in the 21st century are to follow the same path. See, we keep the commandments of God because we are God's people, not in order to become God's people. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, if you remember, that we are saved by God's grace through our faith in Christ. See, salvation has nothing to do with our doing anything good. Indeed, who does good in and of themselves? Anybody? (laughs) Jesus says, no one 
And if we search our hearts, we know the same thing, don't we? See, someone asked Jesus one day what the greatest commandment is, and he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the law and the prophets. And I find it significant that when Jesus said this, he was covering all Ten Commandments in two. The first four commandments were summed up by loving the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the last, the last six commandments, he said, love your neighbor as yourself. That tied those together. But there's one other commandment I think that especially we as Christians overlook that's just as important. And that's found in, in John in chapter 13, 34, and 35. It's Jesus' new commandment. And here's what he says. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So Ten Commandments, and then again, Jesus' great commandment, new commandment, given to the brotherhood and the sisterhood here. So for the Christian, keeping the commandments of God is a big deal. But did you also know it goes to the very heart of who we are as disciples of Jesus? See, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, we read that Christ's disciples, as his disciples, we go and make disciples. And we do this in two ways. We do this by baptizing them, and we do this by teaching them. And by the way, if you are a follower of Jesus, and if you have not gotten baptized, you need to do so. See, this is Jesus' commandment to all Christians. But what is baptism? Baptism is a public testimony that you are a follower of Jesus and that you died to your old life and that you seek to follow him in this one. Not perfectly, though, but loyally. That's the key. And so if you're a follower of Christ, but you've not gotten baptized and you need to, those of you who are Grace United, come talk to me. And those who are at other places, you need to talk to your pastor or find a pastor there who can help you get baptized. See, getting baptized is something that a disciple of Jesus does. Again, not one who is sinlessly perfect, because if we were sinlessly perfect, we wouldn't need God's grace, would we? No, we get baptized to show the fact that we have died to ourselves and that we are now following Jesus in a loyal manner. Second, we as disciples are to teach others. But what is it that we're to teach them? He says in Matthew 28, 19, we are to teach everything that Jesus taught us. Teach obedience to his commandments. And what is that? Another way of saying keeping the commandments of God. He says, I want you to teach these disciples everything that I, to observe everything I've commanded you. To obey everything I've commanded you is what he is saying. And as those who make disciples, we ourselves also are to be obedient to the Lord, aren't we? See, it just stands to reason. We cannot very well teach other people to obey the Lord if we ourselves are living in disobedience. What is that called? Hypocrisy. If we're telling other people to do things that we're not doing. And guess what Jesus thinks about hypocrites? I think we know, don't we? Well, the third reason we are to serve the Lord in place is because of those who are lost in our world. In other words, Jesus assigned us to our places of ministry in order to be a witness to them. I find it very significant that when Jesus began his ministry, 
there were no Christians. Kind of a no-brainer, but that's true, right? We usually don't think along those lines. But there were no Christians when Jesus first began. He called his disciples to himself, didn't he? But when the going got tough for him, Jesus did not quit. Jesus didn't say, well, you know, I've had it with you guys, and now I'm going to go to some other place where I'm more well-received. No, but there were certain times, though, that he avoided certain people for a time because if they would have gotten their hands on him, what would they have done? They would have killed him. But Jesus continued to say, my time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. But we do know that when it did come time for him to die, he did not avoid it. But he allowed himself to be slain as a lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. It was God's timing he uh, lived by. And so whether a person is married or single or living in a spiritually mixed marriage, whether Jew or Gentile or even a slave, if a Christian left the place that the Lord assigned him, who would witness to all the lost people in the place that they just left? See, there are relationships, even the most intimate of relationships, that a person would leave behind. And who better to reach them than the Christian in that condition? That's why Paul says, stay there. Now, some of us may remember a has-been singer, a nobody of long ago named Bob Dylan. In the 70s, he at least attached himself to the Christian community, and he sang some powerful songs that reflected his attachment. Now, it's my understanding that Bob Dylan returned to Judaism, and so I don't know where his spiritual status is. I don't know whether he's saved or not. But he did write, and he sang a very popular song that many of us know about. It's called Gotta Serve Somebody. Remember that song? Now, you guys who are younger, you probably have no clue what I'm talking about. Well, I made a count, believe it or not, a little more time in my hands this week. And so I made a count of the different kinds of people, different descriptions that, that Bob Dylan sang about in his song, Gotta Serve Somebody. There are 39 different kinds of people from all walks of life. Some are from our seedy uh, people. Some um, walks of life are pretty seedy. Others are respected in society. And there are people in our state, in our line of work, our sphere of influence, who need to be told, like the ambassador or socialite or heavyweight champion of the world. You got to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord. You got to serve somebody. Think mission field in every one of these 39 descriptions of these people that Bob Dylan mentioned in his song. But if you leave your station in life, who will tell them of the choice that they need to make, either serving the devil or serving the Lord? The bottom line here is that in each condition of life, it carries with it opportunities to serve the Lord as a Christian. Therefore, serve him right in the place where you are. And in Paul's day, that even included slavery as slaves. Now, it's no secret that there is a vast difference in worldview between Paul's day and our own. And if we were to read our present understanding into Scripture, we would completely miss the point and totally misunderstand, misapply, and sadly even write off God's eternal wisdom and truth. All because we failed to read Scripture in its cultural context. In our world, we are hypersensitive to the word slavery. It's almost a banned word in our day. 
But the truth is that there are more slaves in the world today than ever before. Did you know that? It's another subject for another time. But you can find some credible sources on the Internet if you care to look, and you'll find them. There are ministries that are trying to help eradicate slavery in our world today. But the point is that there are more slaves now than ever before in our world. Now, Paul addressed the issue of slavery head on. But notice how he handled it. He did not say it was a profound evil. What he did, though, he reframed it. He reframed the issue. And although I would say that Paul, even here, kind of sowed the seeds for the destruction of the institution called slavery. For example, think about this. Paul was writing to the Corinthian Christians. How can a Corinthian slave owner, as a Christian, sit right next to a slave who's his brother in Christ? It doesn't make sense, does it? And so again, Paul, I believe, was beginning to sow the seeds of the destruction. See, Paul even goes so far as to say that every Christian has an exalted status as Christ's slaves. In verse 23, he said, Christians were purchased with the blood of Christ. Therefore, he owns us. If we're purchased, that means we have an owner, right? He bought us. See, we don't like to say that Jesus owns us as Christians, do we? We, we don't like that. We like our own individuality, individuality. We like our own autonomy. But that's not what Paul said here. See, we like to say that God loves us, and he does. We like to say that Jesus wants the best for us, and he does. But Paul said that since Jesus bought us with his blood, that means he owns us. That means we have no rights. We have to do what the master says. So let's talk about slavery as one of Paul's life conditions. He did not take the institution of slavery and call for its demise right here. But notice again what he said about it in verses 21 to 23. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. (laughs) But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord is a bondservant as a bondservant, is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with price. Do not become bondservants of men. The white space is become a bondservant of Christ. Notice what Paul says here. If you became a Christian while being a slave, don't be concerned about it. That doesn't sound right to our ears, does it? But slavery in those days, though, was a lot different than the slavery in our more recent history. For one thing, a large percentage of the population of the Roman Empire was slaves. Some people actually estimate it to be about 85% in those days that were slaves. And they were afforded a lot of privileges. Even they They were even better protected than some employees of certain jobs. But Paul said, as a Christian, don't worry about your status as a slave. In essence, he says, you're every bit as valuable as a master. You of all people know how it feels to being owned. And even to them, Paul says, serve the Lord in place. The power of the Christian and living a Christian life is such that even as a slave, one can faithfully serve the Lord. But in no uncertain terms, Paul says, change your condition if you can do so. Now, this gives us, again, a a clue as to the vast difference between first century slavery and the 17th century slavery. See, 
Back then, slavery was not skin color based. It was not ethnic and it was not lifelong. It was primarily economic, though many people actually were born into slavery. See, people often sold themselves as slaves because they could not pay their debts. Now, slaves held positions of power at times. They were barbers and mirror makers and goldsmiths and architects and business managers and bureaucrats. And there, were even, there was even a category called managerial slaves who, according to one historian, could actually run country estates on behalf of their owners in Rome. Again, think about Genesis. Think about Joseph. Was he not a slave? He was promoted to prime minister of Egypt. The slaves were also able to save money and even pay for their freedom during those days. It was rare for a slave in the empire to be enslaved all their lives. And the average number of years that a person was enslaved was usually seven. It became a very common thing for slaves to be set free from their masters in the empire. So much so that Caesar Augustus actually placed limits on the number of slaves who could be set free. It's amazing, wasn't it? A lot different than what we're thinking about the way we think about slavery. And even though slaves did not have it nearly as rough as those who endured slavery in our own history, there was still that hideous thing of one human owning another human. Again, they had no rights. And they had to obey his or her master in everything they said. Well, certainly, there was much abuse in every way imaginable, and we won't go into that. And so we can't paint the picture too rosy. And as I mentioned, though, Paul's counsel to slaves, telling them that they are equal members in the family of God, and they could serve the Lord just as effectively as anybody else, went a long way toward the destruction of the institution. Indeed, Christians led the way for abolition, but it wasn't until the 1700s in England that slavery was actually outlawed, making slavery, making England the first country in the history of the world to do that. And so in our passage for today, Paul's counsel is serve the Lord in place. And that counsel can be applied in our day and even in our present circumstances as well, even Physically, as we're talking about sheltering in place, we can serve Him in place. But what can be done to serve the Lord in place? Let me give you several ideas here. Maybe you've thought about them. But now that many of us have a little bit more time on our hands, let's invest that time in prayer and intake of the Word. Be more intentional in your prayer time. Think, okay, I want to spend not just 10 minutes, but maybe an hour today I can pray to the Lord. When's the last time you spent an hour in prayer? Or even remember that song, Sweet Hour of Prayer? Anybody ever do that? Or what about that Bible study that you've wanted to do for a long time but never got around to doing it? Why? Because you were so busy. Maybe you have a little bit more time on your hands now. Do that. Deliberately choose to spend time with the Lord. When you wake up in the morning or even before you go to bed, say, I want to spend more time with the Lord tomorrow morning. Or when you wake up saying, I want to spend and I will spend more time with the Lord today. Another idea, actively serve those you are living with. Family members, serve one another at home. I see some looks there. (laughs) Demonstrate Christ-like love to them. Show the fruit of the Spirit. For as Paul said, keeping the commandments of God is what matters. 
behind the doors of your home, do what you've always done, (laughs) or maybe what you should have done all along. (laughs) In the words of a great man of God, Howard Hendricks, he said this, if your Christianity does not work at home, it doesn't work. Don't export it. Now is a perfect time also to serve the Lord by developing a keen sense of trust in the reality that he is the one who takes care of us. Very uncertain times economically, isn't it? But who is the one that takes care of us? Who's the one that really provides for us? It's the Lord who does. Again, it comes back to the foundation. We need to ask the question and be committed to the answer. Is the Lord your provider? Do you trust him to do so? Or is it your employer? Or the government, who is the ultimate provider. When I was in the Air Force, my motto, regardless of of where they sent me or what paycheck I had or promotion or whatever, I said this, I get my needs met from the Lord, but Uncle Sam writes the paycheck. And it's the same with all of us. Even though personally I get a pension from, from the government, it's still the Lord providing for us. And should the government stop printing the money, and the VA stops making their deposits in my account, I have every confidence that the Lord will continue to meet my needs and the needs of my family. There's another area that we can serve Him in place, and that is that we can learn to trust Him to protect us, especially regarding catching the virus. And though many people have died from the complications that this virus brought, it is the Lord who is our protector especially right now. Do you believe that? Do you believe it? With the steady drumbeat of death and destruction in the vast majority of our news reports, let's choose to believe that the Lord is our protector. And for Christians, we cling to the words of the Apostle Paul when he said, for me to live is Christ and to die is what? It's gain. It's gain. Paul wrote these words while he was living himself in very uncertain times. If you remember the story, he was under house arrest in Rome, waiting for his day in court for two years to hear from, to gain a hearing in front of Nero. Now, if you know anything about Nero, you know that he was not too fond of Christians. And it was a Caesar, Caesar Nero, who had the absolute power to grant life or to take it. And Paul said, in essence, if Caesar directs my death, it's the one-way ticket to be with Jesus. And so we take precautions. I'm not saying we should not. But we are to treat one another as human beings, not as monsters who may give us a death sentence. How often do people look at us? I've noticed it when I've been in the stores. People just kind of look away or, or maybe there's some angry look. You, know, you better stay away from me because you're going to give me some kind of disease. I'm going to die. How many people have seen that? Well, another thing that we can do by serving the Lord in place, if you can venture out while taking precautions, find people you can serve. Contact people and ask them if you can do something for them. Make yourself available. And for those of us who know our way around the Internet world, there are many places we can serve Him there. For example, just type in the words online evangelism or Internet missionary, and you can find a whole slew of organizations that you can volunteer in. My oldest son, Jeremy, has been involved with this group called the Media, a Global Media Outreach. And he, he has given the gospel to many people he will never meet this side of heaven. 
And their latest numbers as an organization, as a ministry since 2004. Let me give you some of these. These are amazing. Almost 2 billion virtual gospel visits. Over 228 million indicated decisions for Christ. And over 250 million discipleship activities in this one group alone. Only the Lord knows how many people are born again from here. You can make a decision, you know, especially if you're just behind a keyboard, right? But the Lord knows. But what a fantastic investment of his time, my son's time, to give the gospel to those who are interested in hearing it. Maybe you can invest your time in that way too. Finally, let's not forget the usual channels of phone calls or texts or emails or even cards via snail mail. Now, even though we all cannot meet together all, all together now, we have not stopped being the church. Is that true? Richard Wormbrandt, who was horribly tortured for Christ for 14 years in two Romanian prisons, told the story of how he and several other prisoners were very close to death. One day, a Romanian soldier who personally tortured Wormbrandt and found himself on the wrong side of the government was now tortured and thrown into the same room with Wormbrandt and his brothers. This soldier was also close to death. He cried out to Richard for mercy, and in spite of all the hellishness that happened at the soldier's hand, Richard and his brothers told him they forgave him. And if they could forgive him, how much more could God forgive him? They lovingly touched this man. They stroked his hair. They caressed him. They wanted to communicate love to this man. And they reassured him of the love that God had for him and the forgiveness that he offered in Christ. Later that night, because of that love, this man gave his heart to Jesus. And he died the next day. And by the way, that was on Christmas. What a Christmas present. I finished the message today by telling the story because Richard Wormbrandt and his friends are incredible examples of serving the Lord in place. They were unable to go anywhere, right? They were literally captives. They were severely tortured by a man who now asked for forgiveness and needed the forgiveness offered by Christ. But what did it take for Richard Wormbrand to be in that position to give this man the gospel? Only years of being imprisonment prior to this. Looked at him after he was actually released And they said, all the tuberculosis, scars on your lungs, you should be dead by now. But he wasn't. It was a miracle, even for him to be alive, to be able to give the gospel to this man who so horribly tortured him. But God is in control. Even though Richard Wormbrand and his friends suffered severely, the Lord saw to it that they were in the right place at the right time to give this man the gospel that set him free for eternity. And I ask you, and I ask me, if it took that much time and that much suffering for Richard to see this one man claim for Christ, what are you and I willing to do to serve the Lord in place that the Lord may be glorified in us? The Lord may never ask us to suffer for him the way he asked Richard to suffer for him. 
And only the Lord knows what impact our faithfulness for him will have on those around us that he has assigned us to serve. Let us serve the Lord in place by serving those he has placed in our lives for his honor and for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, you are our Lord. You are our master. Those of us who are in the family, we're also servants. We are bond servants of yours, Lord. You bought us with the price of your blood. We are your slaves. We have no rights. We are to do your bidding. It's not easy to hear. But Lord, you have assigned us, each one of us who know you, in positions, stations of life. I pray, Lord, that you help us to be faithful at serving you right where we are. I pray, Lord, that you'll give us creative ideas, uh, understanding of our, of our situation. Lord, that we might serve you faithfully. Lord, you've served us to the uttermost. You started by washing the disciples' feet in the upper room that night. And you said, if I, your Lord and Master, wash your feet, we ought to be able to wash one another's feet. And so, Lord, we give ourselves to you again, anew and afresh. And we ask you, Lord, that you will help us. Lead us, guide us. And Lord, now as we sing our final song, I pray that you'll send us forth with your blessing. Send us forth encouraged. Send us forth strengthened that you are a protector that you are our provider, that you are the one that we are to worship. We are, you are the one that we are to serve. And we will give you thanks, and we will give you praise for this. In Jesus' name, amen.